We're going to read some scripture this morning. Uh, Luke 24, uh, 13 through 21. Uh, words are on the screen. And uh, let me share this with you. Familiar passage. It's uh, Resurrection Day in the afternoon. And this is what Dr. Luke writes. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know that what has happened here in the, these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. Well, we'll uh, dive into that in just a little bit, but let's uh, pray this morning as we... uh, continue our worship. Lord, we are so grateful to be here today. Um, Lord, you are risen. You're risen indeed. And every every Sunday is a reminder that the tomb is empty and that uh, we serve a risen Savior. Thank you for the privilege of worship today. Lord, we pray that uh, you would open up our hearts and minds and thoughts to uh, what the Spirit of God has for us today. And uh, may we not just be Here's the word, but may we be doers as well. Now bless us as we look into your word, and we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we're going to look at Luke 24, and uh, the resurrection of Jesus is not the end of the story, as we all know. It really just introduces a new new chapter to to the story. And uh, what we're going to look at is some post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. What did Jesus do after the resurrection? He could have ascended directly back into heaven uh, like that same day, but he chose not to. And so uh, we're going to just think about some uh, introductory questions here uh, to set the table, and then we'll look at one of his post-resurrection appearances in Luke chapter 24. So here's just a couple questions to set the table. Um, How long did Jesus make post-resurrection appearances? In other words, how long was he on planet earth in his resurrected body before he ascended to heaven. And we know that from Acts chapter 1, Dr. Luke writes in Acts 1 in his introduction to the book, he, the risen Christ, appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, for six weeks approximately, Jesus made post-resurrection appearances. I wonder where he stayed. I, I, the Bible doesn't say. You know, did he did he did he did he stay with his his mother Mary? Was he did he stay with some friends? Uh, we don't know a lot of those details. But for for six weeks, forty days, he appeared to people in his post-resurrection body. Um, how many post-resurrection appearances are recorded in Scripture? And and do you have an insert in the bulletin that's a little difficult to read? I apologize for that. But at least 10 are recorded in Scripture. So at least 10 different times, and 
Perhaps there's more than that. Maybe the Bible didn't record them all, but at least 10 times he made post-resurrection appearances. And the third introductory question is just to think about this. What was the purpose of the post-resurrection appearances? Why didn't Jesus just raise from the dead and then he could have just uh, ascended to heaven from the, the, the garden, uh, the tomb there in the garden? But no, he made lots of post-resurrection appearances. And again, Dr. Luke gives us the answer in Acts chapter 1. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many, the NIV says, convincing proofs. The New King James Version says infallible proofs that he was alive. So why did Jesus make post-resurrection appearances? He wanted to prove to people that he had rose from the dead. And if it was just the empty tomb, if that's all that, that people saw, the empty tomb, that would lead itself to what? Rumor? Speculation? Maybe they stole his body? In fact, that was what the party line was for the Roman guards. The Jewish religious leaders came after the resurrection of Jesus and they gave them a large sum of money, the Bible says, and they said, you are to say that the disciples came and stole his body. That's the party line. And uh, so Jesus made these appearances to prove that he had resurrected from the dead. And Paul gives this list in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, we won't take time to read it, verses 3 to 8. And he lists many of the post-resurrection appearances. In fact, he says, at one time, he appeared to 500 people at once. Most of them are still alive. And when Dr. Luke writes the, the Gospel of Luke, it's about 55 AD, so it's about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, if you don't believe it, why don't you talk to one of those individuals who actually saw Jesus in his post-resurrected body? Well, we're going to look at one of those post-resurrection appearances. It's found in Luke chapter 24, and, and here's the timeline. Uh, last Sunday, obviously, we looked at John chapter 20 and uh, the resurrection, and his very first post-resurrection appearance was to Mary Magdalene. And we read that story that, that Mary's there and she's weeping and crying and wondering what happened to the body of Jesus. She sees the empty tomb and um, then she sees somebody and through her tears she thinks he's the gardener. And it's really Jesus. And Jesus makes his first resurrection, post-resurrection appearance to Mary Magdalene. And uh, that was Sunday morning. Uh, we also know that Sunday night, and we briefly looked at this, that Sunday night in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, he appeared to the disciples who were in an upper room with the doors locked, and we speculated that they were there scared to death because they're thinking, if they killed our leader, they're coming after us. And Sunday night, resurrection day, all of a sudden, Jesus appears, he shows them his hands and his side, and all of a sudden they realize Jesus is alive. But the passage we're looking at this morning, 
takes place the same day of his resurrection, and it's the afternoon, the afternoon of resurrection day. So let's look at Luke 24, the setting, the setting is where we want to start with verse 13, Luke chapter 24, verse 13, Dr. Luke writes, now that same day, so this is resurrection day, the first day, Uh, the chapter starts out on the first day of the week, so this is Sunday, and it's probably, as we kind of look at this timeline, it's Sunday afternoon. So in the morning, Mary Magdalene, in the evening, to the disciples locked up in that upper, in that room together. Here he is in the afternoon, and uh, here is uh, here's the the storyline here, the setting rather. Uh, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So there's two of them, two followers of Jesus, and they are not identified immediately. Later on, we learn that one of them is named Cleopas. We don't know the name of the other one, but they are walking back from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus, and it's seven. It's a seven-mile walk, seven-mile journey. Now, um, just to kind of give us some context here, uh, Manchester to Napoleon is about nine miles west of here. So they're walking, they're seven miles away, and they're walking back from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus. And uh, the subject, let's look at what they're talking about. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Of course they were. I mean, this is, this is an earth-shattering event. It happened in Jerusalem. It happened Passover weekend when the... Uh, Crowds in Jerusalem would have swelled to about 10 times their normal population because people, Jews, were coming from all over what to celebrate Passover. So there were were hundreds of thousands of people there. And uh, what were they talking about? Of course they were talking about the the resurrection and uh, the crucifixion, rather, and the empty tomb. It's kind of like the analogy would be... um, what were people talking about Tuesday afternoon on September 11th, 2001? Of course we know what everybody was talking about. You know, the, the Twin Towers and uh, the Pentagon and that field in Pennsylvania, Shankville, Pennsylvania, because it was an earth-shattering, life-changing event. Same thing, uh, analogy here. Everybody's talking about what happened in Jerusalem. It was dark from noon to three. There was an earthquake. <laughs> uh, there's rumors now that, uh, the, the, that Jesus' tomb is empty, and there's all sorts of news, and people are trying to figure out exactly what happened. And so they're talking about the day's events. And as they do, there's a surprise appearance Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. (laughs) Oh, so here they are walking back from Jerusalem. It's Sunday afternoon. They're talking about 
the darkness, the earthquake, the veil in the temple torn in two from top to bottom, the rumors that Jesus' tomb is empty, um, rumors that it was stolen. Uh, they're discussing all of this, and all of a sudden they hear footsteps behind them, and a, approaches, a, a man approaches them and begins to walk with them, and the text says they were kept from recognizing him. This is God's intervention here. They, it's, it's in the passive form. Uh, so uh, they were able to see him, but somehow God prohibited them, at least temporarily, from exactly recognizing who Jesus is. They're going to find out a little bit later who they were, were talking to. And so uh, it's, it's Jesus himself that joins these two disciples walking from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. Now, let's look at what they were discussing, and we call this the sadness because the two disciples um, were sad. They, 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 weren't, they weren't rejoicing and happy. The, the, the text is going to tell us that they were kind of depressed and discouraged on resurrection morning. Why, why was that? Because they didn't know the truth. And they're soon going to know the truth. And so Jesus engages in a conversation with these two. What are you discussing as you walk along? <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? What's, you know, what, are you, what are you discussing on, on your journey here? And it says they stood still, their faces downcast. That question stopped them in their tracks, and they were sad. They were discouraged. They were downcast. And so they relate the story of what's going on and what the conversation is about. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Like, are you kidding me? You, you don't know what's going on here? You don't know about all these... Uh, uh, Tremendous events that have happened and uh, what's the buzzes through the whole city. And so um, Jesus kind of goes along with them and so, draws them out. He says, what things, he asked. And then they tell him what's, what's on their hearts about Jesus of Nazareth. They don't know he's talking. They're talking to him. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Here's their, here's their sadness here, but we had hoped. We had some expectations. And anytime we have expectations that are not met, the difference between our expectations and reality is the difference between our discouragement and sadness. And they're saying, we had hoped, here's what we were expecting, here's what we were hoping, that he would be the one who was going to redeem Israel. Most Jews in the first century were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a political Messiah. They were looking for someone who would come and rescue them from the oppression of what? Being under Rome and the heavy taxation to Rome. And what was the party line that you're expected to say if the, you're expected to say what Caesar is Lord? 
They worship their emperor. And so now uh, they, they've been under the oppression of Roman control, and they were hoping that someone would come and would lead a rebellion and deliver them from the oppression of Rome. In fact, one of the disciples, uh, I think it was uh, Simon the Zealot, the zealots were ones who were actively looking to overthrow uh, the uh, Roman oppression. And uh, uh, they were looking for a deliverer. They were looking for someone to deliver them. What is more, they say, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning and didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. So they're trying to process this. They're trying to put this all together, exactly what has happened. And in their minds, um, you know, their, their expectations have been uh, greatly, greatly diminished. Well, what changed the whole storyline here is a study from Scripture. In fact, a Bible study that was led by Jesus himself. Let's, uh, let's look at it. Verse 25 says, Then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are! and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Here's the problem. You don't know the truth. You've not studied your Old Testament scriptures. He's going he's gonna to show this to them, but he's, he, he basically will tell them, if you knew your Old Testament scriptures, you would know that the first time the Messiah comes, he's coming as a suffering servant. And so Jesus rebukes these two. You're foolish. You're slow to believe the prophets. Here's what he says. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Here's, here's the wonderful verse here. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. How would you like to have been part of that Bible study? <laughs> Let, let, you know, uh, what, what'd you do today? Oh, uh, at the dinner table. Yeah, I, I went to a Bible study. Was it any good? That's pretty good. Who's the leader? Jesus. Oh, yeah, that'd be really good. And so Jesus leads them in this study, and it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, just to throw this question out here, if, if uh, someone were to come to you and say, can you show me from the Old Testament the prophecies and predictions about Jesus' first coming and that, that he's going to suffer? Uh, where would you turn to? And I, I wish Dr. Luke would have given us the outline, but he didn't. But there's several key passages in the Old Testament that point to to Jesus as the suffering Savior. Let me just speculate that perhaps Jesus started quoting Psalm 22. Uh, it starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that on the cross. Um, 
But I am a worm, verse 6 of Psalm 22, and not a man scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. He goes on and on to, to describe, actually, the, the crucifixion here. I am poured out like water, verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, cast lots for my garment. What's that talking about? A crucifixion? When was that written? A thousand years before Jesus went to the cross? How about Isaiah 53? Uh, written uh, 700 years before the cross. And Isaiah portrays uh, Jesus as what? The suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Surely he took on our, our pain. He bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. It goes on and on and, and talks about the fact that Jesus will not, um, his body will not decay in the grave. And so uh, there's lots of Old Testament passages that point this out, that the Savior will be a suffering servant. And Jesus explains that to them. And he explains the Bible study, the study from Scripture. And then as we conclude the, the storyline here, it concludes with supper with the risen Christ. So not only did they have a Bible study led by Jesus, but they had dinner with him that first Sunday. Let's look at it in verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So Jesus was going to just continue on, and they're like, hey, why don't you stay with us for dinner? It's late in the day. And it says he did. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to them. Ah, all of a sudden now, here, God opens their eyes. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. All of a sudden, maybe as he's breaking the bread, they see the nails in his hand, nail prints in his hands, the scars. I, I don't know, but God allowed them to understand who they were talking to. This is Jesus himself, the Messiah. And it sounds like as soon as they recognized him, Jesus disappeared in his glorified body, which, um, as you read scripture, it was a flesh and blood body, but it could almost like teleport itself. I mean, when he appears to the disciples, it says all of a sudden Jesus is standing there and he just appears. And here he's with the, the two disciples having dinner and then he disappears. They asked each other, 
Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? Like, wasn't that amazing? That Jesus himself taught us from the Old Testament scriptures and all these uh, Old Testament prophecies that prophesied about um, the, the suffering Savior. Well, here's how the story concludes. Uh, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So what do those two disciples do? They turn around and after the dinner with Jesus and he disappears, now they go back to Jerusalem. They've got some exciting news to tell. And they find the disciples, they find the the disciples there, and they tell them, it's true. Jesus is alive. We actually talked with him and walked with him, and we actually had a Bible study with him, and we actually had dinner with Jesus. He is alive. And he's also shown himself to Peter. Well, that's the most extended, insightful um, passage we have about the post one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and um, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Let's look at uh, just in conclusion some life lessons from Luke chapter twenty-four. So, what what can we um, apply to our lives as we think about this post-resurrection appearance to the two on the road to Emmaus? Here's here's the first one, is this, that life's most important question, the most important question in life, centers around the identity of Jesus. That's the $64,000 question. Who is Jesus? In fact, Jesus asked that in uh, Matthew chapter 16. Him and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi, way north. It's the furthest north that he ever got in his ministry. And uh, they're there in uh, pagan territory. And he asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do people think Jesus is? Who do people think that I am? And the answer, well, some think you're John the Baptist, and some think you're Elijah, and some think you're a prophet. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives the answer, doesn't he? He says, you're the Christ. The son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my my spirit has revealed that to you. Peter, you got the right answer. I'm, I'm the son of God. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Well, that's what the two on the road to Emmaus needed to discover. They didn't really have a correct understanding of who Jesus was. In fact, when they, when they tell their, their story as they're relating to Jesus before they recognize who he, he, that they were talking to Jesus, in verse 19, when Jesus says, what, what things are you talking about? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet. Now notice they use past tense. <laughs> he was a prophet. In their mind, they think he's dead. They don't know the truth that he's risen. And their description of who Jesus was was good, but not enough to to be saved. 
Jesus was more than a prophet. Jesus is what? The Messiah. The Son of God. The living Savior. And so the most important question in all of life is, who is Jesus? And in order to, to come to faith in Jesus and to be saved, you need to understand who he is. You also need to understand what he has done. Death, burial, and resurrection as the sin payment for the sins of the world. And then thirdly, what? We need to receive that personally, don't we? In our hearts and life. Well, the most important question is, who is, who is Jesus? Uh, the second lesson is this. The Old Testament scriptures teach us that the cross comes before the crown. The cross comes before the crown. In other words, the Messiah, the first time he came, must come as what? A suffering servant. Jesus shared his life mission. I've come, what? To seek and to save the lost. How are you going to do that? The only way to do that is by suffering and going to the cross. And the second coming is much different. He's coming back as King Jesus. And so uh, Jesus says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things first, the cross, and then enter into glory? His first coming, he came as a suffering servant. We looked at it a few weeks ago when we were looking at the last week in Jesus' life that Zechariah 9.9 prophesied that he, he would come into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey. He, he came in humility. No, no, king, no king comes riding on a donkey. They either come on a chariot or they come on a horse surrounded by bodyguards and others. He came humbly. He comes on a donkey. And so people in the first century were disappointed. Why? Because their expectations were wrong. And they didn't realize that what? The cross had to come first and then the crown. And there's a day coming, as I mentioned, when he'll uh, come on a white horse. Read Revelation chapter 19. He, he, he's coming with the armies of heaven, and he's riding on a white horse, and he's coming as a king and a conqueror, and he's, he's wearing a sash that says, King of kings and Lord of lords, much different than his, his first coming. And so the cross needs to come before the crown. Just by way of maybe a secondary application uh, with that thought is that we need to realize and understand uh, that sometimes when we come to faith in Christ, uh, we think that all of life's problems are going to be solved. And all of a sudden now life is going to be wonderful and uh, all, no more difficulties, no more problems. And there's a line of thinking called the prosperity gospel that basically says, come to Jesus and you'll be what? Healthy, wealthy, and wise. And they preach that. All your problems are going to be gone. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, um, that's not the reality of Scripture, and that's not the reality of life. Sometimes when you come to faith in Christ, guess what? Life gets harder. Yeah, we, we've got our eternal destiny, but 
Sometimes life gets more difficult. Jesus said, Matthew, John 16:33, in this world you will what? Have trouble. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Peter writes to suffering saints, persecuted Christians in First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, we're going to experience that glory, after you have suffered a little while. Oh, after we've suffered a little while, he will restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So the gospel is wonderful, and our sins are forgiven, and we have this wonderful home in heaven, but there's still what? pain in this world, and there's still disappointment, and there's still suffering. The good news is that God uses that to to build our character and to make us more and more like his son, Jesus. Well, the third, and we'll conclude with this, the third uh, life lesson from Luke 24 is... Not only is the identity of Jesus the most important question, not only do we need to understand the order, the cross comes before the crown, but here's the third one. We should feel a sense of urgency in sharing the good news, the gospel, with other people. There should be a sense of urgency to what declare the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, you can have your sins forgiven by repenting of your sins and putting your, your faith and trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as your Savior. And when you do that, you have the guarantee of what? Life everlasting with him someday. That's really, really good news. And how are people going to know that? Well, Second Corinthians 5, 19 through 21 says that we are God's ambassadors. We're to proclaim the message Be reconciled to God. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, took our sin, so what? That we could become what? The righteousness of God. That we could have a perfect standing before him someday. That's really, really good news. And uh, if you study this text carefully, you see the sense of urgency that the two disciples, followers of Jesus, who were disappointed and then understood that he was the Messiah, that he was alive, had. And when they discovered that good news, let's just look at the timeline. This happened, what, Sunday afternoon. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that the uh, journey to, uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus probably started early afternoon, just as, as the text reads, we don't know for sure. But remember, it's seven miles. I, I, I looked up, what's the average um, pace of just walking normally a mile? And most people walk at three to four miles per hour. It takes about 20 to 25 minutes to walk one mile. So they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, seven miles. It's going to take them probably at the most two and a half hours. It's a two and a half hour walk to walk seven miles. So they leave in the afternoon, say two o'clock, two and a half, two and a half hours, say now it's 4.30. Jesus wants to keep on going. They say, no, let's have dinner. 
He stays for dinner. If you know anything about Middle Eastern hospitality, that could have lasted an hour or two. Say it's like 6.30 in the evening now. And they discover who Jesus is. And what do they say? What's the text say? Verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. So now it's 6.30, maybe 7 o'clock at night, and they discover Jesus alive, and they're so excited. They, got, they say, we need to go tell the disciples this. So now they turn around and they walk two and a half hours back to Jerusalem. <laughs> now it's 9 o'clock at night, and they say, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. They were so excited. Um, they just had to tell the good news. I started to speculate, and we don't know this answer. Like, well, did they stay in Jerusalem that night? Was was there a hotel at the Jerusalem Inn? And they're like, we've already walked from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and now we've walked uh, from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. We've already done 15 miles. You know, it's, it's 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night now. I, the text doesn't tell us. Maybe they stayed with some friends. Maybe they found a room in the inn. Maybe they walked back home again. <laughs> Another two and a half hours. It would have been so much easier for them just to say, hey, let's, uh, let's go to bed for the night. It's been a long day. We've already experienced a lot in our life, and we've already walked two and a, you know, two and a half hours, and we're tired. Uh, this is good news, but let's wait till tomorrow or another day. Let's go to bed. No. They were so excited and passionate about the urgency of saying Jesus is alive, that they make their journey back and they tell the disciples, he is alive. And so we need to sense that same urgency, don't we? And, and uh, sharing the good news of the gospel with other people. That's why we have an Awana program to try to tell kids the good news. Jesus is their savior. It's one of the reasons we beyond Awana, to, to disciple kids and to, to maybe tell some kids from our neighborhood that, that don't know about Jesus that he's the Savior. That's why we need to be uh, intentional about thinking and praying and asking God, who in my circle of influence doesn't know Christ and what is my plan? How can I intentionally love them, share the love of Christ with them, but also share them the good news? It's also why, as um, we've been thinking and praying as, as a leadership, um, it was about two months ago when we had John Shirley here. John Shirley is a missionary with uh, Association of Baptists for World Evangelism. His ministry is called Live Global. His ministry is rescuing kids who are living in the streets, homeless kids, uh, orphans of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And they have this wonderful ministry of, of partnering those kids with, with a local church family that they, they are connected with. And they, they bring these kids off the streets and they bring them into a, a home where they have a bed at night and food on the table. And then that family begins to take them to that local church and then become to hear about the good news uh, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive. And many of them come to faith in Christ. And when he shared that, the sense is that we need to partner with them in some way. 
And so um, in a few weeks, we're, we're going to ask the church congregation to, to uh, partner with them. We want to give a, a significant gift to Live Global. Why? Because there's kids that are living on the streets that need to come to know Jesus. Imagine if that was one of our kids, one of our grandkids, and there's a sense of urgency so that these kids would come to know the good news. Well, the two disciples didn't wait. They could have gone to bed. I said, no, we're heading back. This story is too good to keep to ourselves. He's alive. He's, we've seen him. The tomb is empty, and we've had supper with Jesus. He's the Messiah. And that's our good news to share as well. Let's uh, pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for this wonderful story from Luke chapter 24. Thank you that we have a record in Scripture of not just the empty tomb, but we have the record in Scripture of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to prove that he is alive. Lord, I pray that every person here this morning has come to the understanding of who Jesus is. That he's not just a good moral teacher, that he's not just a prophet, but he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And the only way that we can experience eternal life with him is to put our faith and trust in him to be our Savior and our sin-bearer. Lord, thank you for the good news that when we do that, you remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. You bury them in the depths of the sea so that you remember them no more. Not that you forget them, but you don't hold them against us anymore. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning that we will take that message of the empty tomb and the good news of the gospel and we will uh, share it, not just in Jerusalem, but in our surrounding areas of where we live. And Lord, ultimately this message goes to the whole world. Help us to partner with others to share that good news. May we be bold and looking for opportunities to share our faith. And Lord, we will thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.